This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Today is February the 18th. My name is John Dunn. My interview with the CEO of Best Friends, Julie Castle, is coming up. Quickly, though, please subscribe to the Best Friends Podcast wherever you listen. If you head to our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast, we've got links to the program for all the major platforms, bestfriends.org slash podcast. And if you like what we're doing here, please share it with your staff, your coworkers, your friends. And you definitely want to make sure you've subscribed and that you don't miss next week, episode 53, because we're going to be announcing an opportunity for you to win money, legit money for your organization. All network partners are eligible to receive this cold, hard cash. So if your organization is not a network partner, apply today. Now, even if you're not officially affiliated with an organization, that's okay. You can still participate. If you are selected, you can just designate a network partner to be the beneficiary if you win. We have more than 3,200 network partners across the country. So if you need to research to decide who would get the money, we've got a link up on the podcast website. Also a link to apply if your shelter or organization is not yet a partner. Not going to tell you yet what this is all about or how it's going to work. I'll tell you next week. I'm not going to give it away. But it's really a question of who wants to be a winner of money. This week, I'm thrilled to be able to share with you my conversation with Julie Castle, the CEO of Best Friends. As I always do, I had a lot of fun catching up with her, and I hope you enjoy. We had you on for the first episode, and we thought it made sense to have you back now. But, you know, coming up to today, I thought, what's the point? It's not like anything has happened since April, has it? (laughs) Not a thing. A lot has happened. And it dawned on me uh, the first time we did this, we were at this moment when COVID was hitting. I think we had started to understand some of the impact. You know, we were at that time talking about how big the public had stepped up in terms of fostering and empty shelters, but we were still trying to figure out what to do. How do we prioritize people and programs? Like, what are we going to do? Are shelters even open, right? But so many of the other things that were part of making 2020 so insane, I mean, hadn't even happened yet. For example, the murder of George Floyd. I mean, it's only been nine months since we talked, but what a nine months. Yeah, it's been a wild ride for sure. And, you know, it's, I I think I can remember, you know, when COVID first hit, I started reaching out to my network beyond animal welfare, you know, people that I've encountered throughout my life that had a meaningful impact on me and people that I've encountered along the way, you know, some supporters of best friends. And there's this really cool guy in New York who was one of the angel investors or the angel investor for Giving Tuesday. And it was kind of his, partially his brainchild, really smart guy. And I said, help, (laughs) what do you make of this? Like, what's happening to our world, what's going to happen to the economy. And he just said, I don't have those answers, Julie, but one answer I do have is never squander a crisis. 
you will either rise or you'll fall. And it's your moment to rise. It was such a great conversation because there's a lot that you can take from that statement of never waste a crisis. And I feel like when your bearings aren't straight and you don't know which way is up, which is basically 2020, really hanging on to that North Star, I think is so critical. And that to me is what opened the doors of opportunity for me personally, for best friends, for a lot of our staff. And and that was really cool to see that we never let go of that rod. I think that's a huge takeaway for me is that, you know, there can be a storm around you and all the flurry and all the, (laughs) you know, all the craziness. But I think if you just stay focused, put one foot in front of the other and really hang on to that North Star. And for us at Best Friends, it's kindness. Bottom line, we are an animal welfare organization, but our bigger, our, our bigger desire is kindness. Kindness to animals builds a better world for all of us. But not just animals, kindness to our fellow humans, the planet, everything around us. You cannot go wrong betting on kindness. The last thing I wanted this interview to be, Julie, is for me just to go through the same questions as last time and just get an update. But I do think we should talk about some of it because so much of what was relevant nine months ago is still relevant today, maybe even more so. And I would put the economy in that latter group. I've said this on the podcast before, interested in your take. I don't personally feel the crunch right now. I have a good job, a great job. I have benefits. My 401k, I think it's the highest it's ever been but that's not at all the reality for tens of millions of Americans. And of course, those people in need means pets in need. So it's almost like, I feel like from my perspective, waiting for the other shoe to drop where we're going to see the big impacts of this that I feel like we know are out there, but not necessarily in a way that is impacting us. Do you know what I mean? So do you have any sense of what's coming and and you know what are we doing to prepare? I mean, you know, listen, if I had a crystal ball and could answer that with certainty, I I would be a very wealthy woman. Uh, But the truth is, I think we are waiting for the other shoe to drop. And and the reason is, you know, going into the pandemic, we likely had the strongest economy that we've ever witnessed in our history. And so because of those fundamentals, we went into this with the wind at our back and just we're gaining strength hand over fist. And so I think the other shoe to drop really is about these relief checks that people are getting. And that is keeping things afloat right now. That to me is why we're not seeing as dramatic of a a situation as we, we should see because the federal government is basically um, hoping that they can hold things together until the economy can stabilize again, until we reopen, until everyone gets vaccinated twice or once, depending upon what version you get. And I, so I, I think the question in my head is, can the federal government outlast the pandemic? And if the answer is, yeah, 
then I actually believe we're going to be in a pretty good position. The one thing that does disturb me, though, is I think people a lot of times confuse the economy with the stock market. They are not the same thing. And the stock market is going gangbusters like I've never seen. And you look at it and you say, are we, are we in a bubble? Is this thing going to crash? Are we, this is crazy. And you get anomalies like GameStop and Reddit and all that. But if you look at the basis of the sectors that are driving the stock market, it kind of feels still relatively healthy. And uh, you, you hear about historical accounts of the roaring 20s. And I believe that when we open back up, there's going to be such a hunger to get out there and just live life again, that the stock market is going to continue to be quite robust. The thing that's disturbing to me is the wealthier are getting not just a little bit wealthier, they're getting extremely wealthier. And what I believe is going to happen out of this is you're going to see a huge divide, bigger than we've ever seen before between the haves and the have-nots. That is something that we are going to have to contend with as a nation. And I, I think it's going to be a huge problem. We ought to be really careful here because my personal politics are really going to start to show. But there is one aspect uh, of this that has huge impact on our work, which is housing. So stimulus aside, the one economic policy that has held through the pandemic has been the federal moratorium on evictions. Tens of millions of pets in homes that will be affected by this. That's going to end at some point. So if I had to choose one thing that scares me the most over the next few months, that moratorium ends and we have this housing crisis. And housing, I mean, it's already a crisis for us in, in animal welfare. It really is. I mean, I think the eviction thing is that it's that holdout that I keep waiting for, not waiting for, I hope it doesn't happen. It's that thing it's the giant monster hiding around the corner because if that happens, there are a lot of people who have been part of this eviction moratorium and you think about they're going to owe a, a year's worth of back rent when, <laughs> when the landlord comes a knocking. I, I would hope that's, that the vast majority of them end up working with these folks, but you know, they have to pay their mortgages too, right? It's a vicious cycle. And so my concern in animal welfare is that you get evicted, you have a pet, your chance of finding a, another place to live after you've been evicted that allows pets, uh, that's a tough one. And that concerns me greatly. And I think that's where all these sil silver linings that we've been talking about in animal welfare and a lot of the great work that we've been doing is really going to be put to the test if, if that actually materializes. If we look back since you and I talked in late March for the launch of the podcast, I think your episode, episode one went up April 2nd. So again, a lot of what made 2020, 2020 hadn't even happened yet. And a huge moment that defined 2020 fundamentally changed things in this country, I think, and in our work was the murder of George Floyd. 
best friends, other organizations, companies, municipalities stood up and said, hey, this is what we believe and here's why. And that's good, Julie. It's good. We've acknowledged this, but that's just a statement on paper. So what did best friends do? What are we doing? And I, we should talk about this internally and externally. So I, I don't know. You can start with whichever. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think that was such a, I, you know, what a tragic event and what a shameful event that happens in our history. And I think as, as children were raised with this historical perspective that, that being a history major and a political science major, you recognize quickly that the way that our history is written really highlights um, all the good stuff, I guess, right? I mean, obviously there's stuff that covered, that's covered that isn't, but when it comes to inequity, when it comes to sort of the sins of our past, in my opinion, we need to start there. And I, I've, you know, you, you could get a great argument from a lot of different people saying, why are we reliving the past and let's move forward and it's all about the future. I agree with that. But I think at some point, in order to understand how to make the future better, you have to go back and understand what happened in the past. And man, it is tragic. It's barbaric. I feel like we as a, a human race, we as Americans, me as a white person, there, there was a lot of soul searching around the George Floyd incident. And I feel like from my perspective, leading this organization during COVID and beyond COVID, it is our imperative to make sure that we don't forget that, that we don't just move on. You know, our country and our society today has such a short attention span. And you'll see things come into the news cycle and they disappear. And you're like, oh, wait, remember killer hornets or murder? You know, it's that kind of thing. And I feel like this is something that we cannot let go of. And I'll never forget, I was in Los Angeles right after I took over managing that program when I was over Best Friends Outreach. And Francis and Silva Batista went out with me. And we went to visit Lori Wise with Downtown Dog Rescue, who was one of the first people who was doing work that wasn't in a ultra white middle or upper class neighborhood. And Lori was so incredible and made such a, an indelible impression on me. And after we left, Francis said, it was so visionary at the time and it's still visionary. He said, we have to stop taking animals out of underserved neighborhoods and moving them into white upper middle class neighborhoods. And I was like, damn, you're right. That is so true. And that has defined our movement. You know, we are a bunch of middle or upper class white, white women, basically. And I'm one of them. You know, look, I, there's nothing I can do about that. That's who I am. But what I can do is be deliberate and 
focused on making sure that the organization that I lead is doing everything in its power to not only embrace those communities, but partner with them and more importantly, learn from them. And so, John, when you ask that question, what is Best Friends doing? You know, the thing that was important to me when all this took place was not rushing in to wave the flag of, hey, we're inclusive. Hey, we want to do this. Because at the end of the day, we weren't. And we needed to really back up and say, what steps do we take to make sure that we are? And so essentially, right about that same time, we had, I, I had asked, I called up Jose Ocaño and I said, Jose, I want you to lead our culture, our organizational culture. It is really important to me. It's a really important position. And you are the type of guy that embodies what our culture is and what it should be, both of those things. And Jose is this uh, remarkable human being who grew up in abject poverty in Tucson, Arizona. He's Hispanic. He's gay. You know, he is extraordinarily empathetic. And I had appointed him to this culture position. And then the George Floyd thing happens. And so I spent a lot of time with Jose. And what we did is we started reaching out beyond the boundaries of animal welfare and looking at other for-profit businesses that were, were leading the way. And one of the organizations that we contacted was a health organization, <clears throat> very large one, Blue Cross Blue Shield. And we talked to the guy who had initiated their program and he helped us craft that framework. And basically the framework was, this needs to come from the top. It needs to be a willing, diverse group of people from your organization who are focused on changing the organization from within, because you're not going to have an impact outside of best friends unless you start changing inside. And so we designed these culture councils and each one of them represent a facet of our, of our operation, because it was important to me that this just didn't become another program. This needed to be deeply integrated with every bit of work that we do. And so the process for selecting people, I opted out of that completely. It was a voluntary situation. Jose interviewed folks along with this guy from Blue Cross Blue Shield. At that point, we had engaged in a contract with Karen and James Evans and Carolyn, and those guys are really special people. Together, we built this culture council. And that team is really devising a strategy around how we're going to tackle this internally. Everything from revising our recruiting strategy to the way that we communicate internally and externally. And I'm telling you, it is not just about putting people of color on your brochures or your website. You just don't pull this out of your pocket. It needs to be authentic and integrated. It needs to reflect the work that you're doing as an organization. We added a member to our board of directors who is Black. 
who is a really great friend to the animals. He's going to be terrific. He is an HR professional to boot, which is really going to help. <clears throat> and the, the grand plan is to develop this to be able to share with the rest of animal welfare and not, not share, say, here, we did this, but actually to learn from others too. Like, this is what we're doing. What are you guys doing? And there's a lot of conversations out there happening like that. I do know one thing is that this is a, you know, multi-century old issue. And I think we need to be careful to not solve, try and solve this overnight because there is a lot to unpack here. And there is a lot of, of stuff that we need to work through as a society and an organization. Final point on this is our core work. When you look at the fact that we're trying to get to 2025 and we are making tremendous progress. And when you look at the latest data release and you see that <clears throat> the animals that are most at risk not everywhere, but in a chunk of our country, those are communities that are also at risk. And so, you know, it is a really great opportunity for us as a movement to say, how do we help the animals in that community? And how do we help the people in that community? And not help, but partner, embrace, you know, learn from, because that's going to be the key. It's not about running in with our capes on, rescuing a bunch of animals and leaving. It is about learning. It's about opening our hearts, opening our minds, and really um, embracing this as a, a community solution, as a solution of kindness that means kindness to our fellow human beings and animals. And it's about changing the world. And I think that I'm really excited about it. You know, I think the more inroads we make and the more progress we make, the more lives we're going to save. And I don't need to define if they're animal or human. I just want to highlight something you said there, which was about not trying to solve this overnight. It's a centuries long issue heard. But the flip side there, I think is another thing you mentioned, which is keeping it moving and communicating that progress. I see it a lot right now where people are saying online, I see it on Facebook, what are you doing? And not just best friends, but across the board. But rightfully so, people are saying a lot of talk about being inclusive and fixing it, but what is actually happening? And I think it's totally fair that people don't want to see this become another moment in history where all of this was for naught. And it turns out that, you know, by and large, it was just a bunch of performative virtue signaling from companies and organizations. It's a really good point. A really good point. And I think, you know, it, and this isn't a this isn't a backup to create an excuse, but look, I'm gonna screw up. We're gonna screw up. We're gonna step in a pile of shit. Um, this is a, this is not only a long game, John, but it's going to be a hard game. And I think, you know, when I hear feedback, like, why is best friends doing this? It's mission creep, blah, blah, blah. This is not, this is the furthest from mission creep. 
that if we don't focus on this and be deliberate about it and constantly work at it, we are not going to achieve what we want to. And that's just the bottom line. And so along the way, communication is paramount. I am so open to feedback on, hey, we're not hearing enough about this. We're not hearing enough about what Best Friends is doing. Great. Let's change that. Let's fix that. That's the that's the beauty of working through a process. Really, it really is new territory for a lot of people. And so I think, you know, the, the more feedback we can get, the better. So a quick throwback to when I started 2007 at Best Friends, there was a time when, when there was controversy, public uproar about things we did. You know, I was the, doing the first social media stuff for Best Friends at that time. And I think everyone listening to this, particularly those with shelters and organizations, we've all been under fire from the public for one thing or another. But the way that this was handled, it feels so different. So let me explain that. I want to be clear, and this is not to say that decisions back then were ever made that went against values or whatever, just simply to appease the public. But the way we reacted to it, this is different. In my eyes, you know, we said, hey, sorry, this is what we believe. And this is what we're going to do. And if you can't support us because of our policy around diversity, equity, and inclusion, then okay, <laughs> like there isn't a middle ground here. There was just something so positive about it. Uh, I think in that sense. So, I feel like when you talk about the organization and you talk about you, two thousand and seven, and of course I've been here a lot longer than that. I feel like we have gone through such an incredible journey together the two of us, the organization, we have grown and matured and really stretched. And I think when it came to this particular issue, it wasn't even a a question in my head. It didn't even cross my mind about, this is a moment to be brave. This is a moment to have courage. This is a moment to be bold. And if people are with you, awesome. If people choose to leave you because of this particular issue, okay. I mean, I think that the gratitude that I have for the donors and the staff that individually reached out to me and said, hey, I saw that you did this. I have some questions. Let's chat. Every single one of those people that I had the opportunity to talk with, and it wasn't because of me, it was explaining the situation to them, why we as an organization made that decision. They stayed. And we had a lot of people leave. And as far as I'm concerned, this is where, to me, you are unwavering and you make the choice to do the right thing. And that's what we did. And we will take our lumps, but I will stand by that. I will stand by that till my dying day. And so I think that those are the moments where you really learn who's who's with you and who's not. A lot of this comes down to being good to people in my eyes. Historically and still today, not necessarily a priority for our movement as we know, 
and not just the public, but you know, this, I love animals, but hate people mentality. It can also be aimed internally at our staff where I think there still are just too many organizations that are not giving the same amount of respect and compassion to staff as they are uh, dogs and cats in need. Yeah, it's so true. And I read this thing the other day that talked about sort of the trajectory of the American economy, the American business. And it, it talked about how, you know, we'd got, we've gone from a starting with using our muscle. So think about farming and factories and industry to shifting to using our brains. So you think about Microsoft and technology and really just evolving the American economy in that way. And now what they're talking about is really leading and running companies with the heart. And I think that is such a cool evolution to think about it that way. Organizations are made up of humans. It is your most valuable asset. And you have to Again, it is a discipline, putting that human element first and really putting the heart first. Uh, as I say in our new employee orientation, we are not, we are so far from perfect. We have a lot of issues. We have a lot of stuff that we're still trying to clean up on IL-6. At the end of the day, I feel like people are not always going to be happy in their job. They're not always going to be happy here. But I feel like it's part of my imperative to recognize that people spend most of their life at a job. And we should do endeavor to make that as fulfilling and as enjoyable as we possibly can. And really look at it from a point of view that it's an employee base that makes anything great. You can have all the innovations in the world. You can have the best brand in the world. You can have the best this, that, and the other. If you don't have, if you aren't taking care of your employee base and a happy staff is a productive staff. And listen, again, we have a lot of work to do. It's a work in progress. But there is a commitment there that the the staff are taken care of. So let's talk more about taking care of staff. This is an absurdly difficult profession, as we know, physically and emotionally. You know, the last year alone, I was thinking about this the other day. We've made so much progress in life-saving. And we know that one of the most difficult things is the life and death decisions that people have to make in the field. So as we increase life-saving, we should be seeing that reduced, right? We should be, saving lives gives us hope. And 2020, I mean, even though we saw great increases in life-saving during that, you know, during the last few months, it really, man, what a, what a tough moment for this to come, really when ideally we really should be uh, healthier than we've ever been. I mean, it's so... To me, when you think about, I'll just take a second and talk about mental health because I really don't feel like our movement talks about it enough. 
And you see these extraordinarily high incidences of suicide, depression, you know, it, it is a reality. And I feel like it's something that as a field, when you are talking about having to deal with lives and not just deal with lives, but having to make that life and death decision every single day, that is heavy. And that to me is a perfect storm for mental illness to perpetuate feelings of, you know, despair and, you know, all sorts of things that people in other industries don't even have to relate to or comprehend. And so for me, that is a really important piece of the whole puzzle. And so to be able to bring on, especially during COVID, a service where you can telehealth, will the telehealth service help? I hope so. And if it doesn't, we'll go back to the drawing board and figure out how to figure it out. But to me, the, the mental health issue is really, it's scary. It's a big deal. I, again, I don't think we have enough exposure to it. I think we need to do a lot more on it. I think we need to recognize that this is an incredibly tough job and that we need to pay special attention to that aspect of things. And so that is a, a really big thing that we're doing. I think internally, one of the things that we kept hearing um, was that people would start their employment with us. And of course, John, you were here when we were, I don't know, 290 employees maybe. And so you think about that, right? And what a, what a tremendous community we have here. And sometimes it's too tremendous because, you know, you go anywhere in town, everyone knows where you're going. Everyone knows what vehicle you drive. It is a total fishbowl. And when you move from a big city to Kanab, boy, oh boy, you know, try buying a bra in town. It's not happening. And so, <laughs> but I think the, I think the challenge with that also is, you know, so when you started, we had 220, 250 employees. We've grown so fast with an employee base. And a lot of the things were not put in place to relate to our staff. And we have a lot of catch up to do. I feel like we are wrapping our arms around that now. And we absolutely need to take better care of our staff and the, the staff are who saved the animals. And that's basically the bottom line. And so one of the things that we recognized that people were saying was, hey, I just got hired here and it's like, I've gotten thrown into the lion's den. I don't know where to go for this. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know, you know, the navigating of all that. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about is pairing up our, our new hires with sort of a, a mentor, somebody who's been here, who's been around the block, including some founders, which is a really special thing. I mean, they aren't going to be around forever. 
we are living in a moment of history with them. I think we need to really honor that, recognize that, and try and learn as much from them as we can now while they're with us. The last discussion for the podcast, we talked briefly about the coming together of the movement, like maybe we've never seen before. Organizations that by and large were not communicating have started to do that. And it's things, you know, how can we best divide resources? What are you doing that can help us and vice versa? And this isn't just national organizations, but everyone everywhere. And that I think has really been something from my seat in the, you know, eighth row or whatever. It's really been something just really cool to watch happen. I mean, I think this has been one of the biggest changes through this whole thing. And it's been really cool to see people and across animal welfare really step up and not just step up, but really commit to having conversations, to getting together, to talking through different issues. You know, people who wouldn't have talked before because 10 years ago you said so-and-so or you wrote this blog or whatever the case may be. It seems like people sort of rose above that during COVID in a way that I've never seen. And I think it has really humanized our movement in a way. And where it is such a, I talk about the mental health thing and how challenging this movement is. One of the other elements is how much demonizing there is uh, about each other, which is terrible. It's terrible. And so for me, I'm very excited about the future and what this holds and how much progress we can make by really looking at truly saying, you know, we have so much more in common than we don't. That's key. And and I I think it's going to be a game changer for us. I really do. In 2016, at the Best Friends Conference, you got up on stage and you drew the proverbial line in the sand, as we always hear about. And you said the goal is no kill 2025. So a 90% save rate in every community across the country, every community by 2025. But what a different world it is now, right? Not just since 2016, but 2019. It's different from the, even from mid 2020 today, February of 2021. So with all the changes, COVID, is the no-kill 2025 goal still relevant in the same way that it was? I, you know, I have this saying and I, I say it a lot and I ripped it off from somebody else. I can't even remember who, but it, what, gets, what gets measured gets done. And to me, having a goal, having something that you can achieve, crossing a finish line, having the data to back it up, it's so critical to me to um, not only focusing your staff, focusing the organization, that sense of accomplishment, really doing something meaningful in life, like really achieving something. And that is so important to me. And so 2025 is a, a critical milestone for animal welfare. Not not best friends. Animal welfare, when you think about 
the numbers that were tossed around in the 80s, 17 million animals dying a year. And we have the special and unique opportunity to actually solve that. That is ridiculously cool. And so when we look at our current picture right now and we look at the data, we know if we did nothing differently right now today, based on the algorithm that we've created, we would hit an 87% save rate nationwide at 2025, which means we wouldn't accomplish the goal. So our great challenge right now is to say, okay, this is what the data tells us. What do we need to do? How do we need to pivot to make sure that we cross that finish line? Those are the conversations that we're having right now. And it is going to take everybody. It's going to take every fiber of our being to make sure that this happens. And COVID actually, I thought when COVID hit, I thought, oh, great. Uh, there goes 2025. Like, let's just survive. Just survive somehow. We need to get through this. We need to all make sure that we're healthy and well. And it kind of, uh, you know, the data is still coming in, but it sped a lot of things up. You know, a lot of organizations, a lot of communities, their data compared to last year is huge. It's so cool to see that. And so that's exciting, but we've got work to do to figure this out. This is not a slam dunk. This is not a done deal. This is anybody that says, oh yeah, we've, we've achieved, we've achieved no kill or we, you know, we're going to get there. So let's focus on something else. No, that's where you lose. You got to stay the course. You got to stay focused. You do have to put one foot in front of the other. And it takes a tremendous amount of discipline to stay focused and keep the organization focused. One thing that I keep coming back to in my mind, Julie, with 2025 is the scale. It is a different discussion today than it was in 2016, but as we increase life-saving, and I hate this term, but the low-hanging fruit communities, right? Communities with huge life-saving gaps, they're receptive, they want help, they have huge intake numbers. So, you know, we can, put some resources, Edinburgh, Texas, Palm Valley is a great example of this, an embed, a best friend's employee there. And, you know, in relatively quote unquote short order is a huge turnaround. But now we're looking at sort of the rest of the country and how do we scale that? We can't put a best friend's employee in every town. We can't. So how do we, you know, the, the scale, this is the stuff that my brain really gets uh, an exercise when I when I think about the remainder from here to 2025. Yeah, it's um, really thought provoking and it's true. We've just started to scratch the surface in some communities and it's fascinating to me how completely disjointed animal welfare has been since its inception. I was on this call the other day with a bunch of national leaders and we had the you know, 100 shelters where top 100 where animals are, are most, most at risk, not as a point of disparagement, but as a point of data and saying, here's where we can make a great amount of impact. Okay, guys, who do you know at these shelters? 
and the revealing truth, it was stunning that a lot of, you know, the greatest networkers, some of the greatest minds in animal welfare did not know anything about some of these places. Where have they been? Where have we been? Um, let's reach out, let's connect, let's do this together. And it was stunning. And I think that there were unearthing a lot of these places who have never really had the resources. They really haven't known about stuff that's going on in our greater movement. And we know for a fact, this is again, another data point that if our network team, best friends network team has contact with shelters in any degree that their life-saving increases by three times. That is powerful. And I'm sure you could translate that to any organization that's out there helping. And that's what I'm most excited about. That to me is what is really permeating my brain right now as I think about, okay, this 87% thing that we talked about, if we don't do something different, we're not going to reach 2025. How do we scale this? How we scale it is we take really badass shelters out there, shelter leaders, you know, humane societies, leaders in the field, and we give them the resources to go make it happen in other places and mentor other places. And actually, it's a, a, a program that we're testing right now with a donor of ours who's funding a pilot. And so we've chosen, you know, a handful of shelters that are remarkable, led by remarkable leaders who are tackling some of these communities and shelters that really do um, could benefit from some of the resources that they have to offer. So it's cool stuff. It'll be interesting to see how that works. I don't know if you caught it yet, but we did an episode on the rural America issue specifically. We interviewed Dana McCrory of Oklahoma Humane and Rhonda Norris of Paws Venita. That's in rural Oklahoma. So Oklahoma Humane, they stepped back and said, okay, there is a wider area of need here beyond where we are in Oklahoma City. It's a statewide need. And we're going to be the ones, we're going to stand up and drive this effort. So they've looked across the state and they're working with existing groups that are already successful. And they actually acquired that group in Venita. I mean, what a special organization to have seen that need and then actually create the plan and act on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I feel like that's been one of the greatest changes that I've seen in the last 10 years is that sort of selflessness, that servant leadership that we're seeing at a local level from organizations who are reaching out and saying, how can we help? Let's learn from you. You learn from us. This power of generosity is alive and well in animal welfare. And it's really cool to witness. And John, that, that story of Dana and Oklahoma, I mean, it is really impressive and it's selfless. You think about it and you think about, talk about a mission driven organization. Talk about, there are so many of those who have grown out of the ranks, who have matured to a point 
where they are confident in their standing in their community. They're confident in their brand. They're confident in their donor base. And they're saying, we are doing true mission fulfillment by reaching out to the community next to us and really helping them. Because at the end of the day, that, that is all for the right reason. And again, I go back to, it is doing the right thing. There used to be a day in animal welfare where there was a food fight over donors, over marketing position, whatever, blah, blah, blah. There's still that. I'm not saying there isn't, but what I am seeing is this whole different level of generosity and, and true selfless leadership from a lot of people. Last, I think I asked you before about leading the organization at a time when there are so many unforeseen challenges. As someone who is, I mean, you know, you're still newish as a CEO, I guess, in that position. How did you prepare to get into the role? I'm wondering, you know, how are you learning on the job? You know, nobody is born an executive director, a, a CEO, a president of an, uh, an organization, and certainly very few a president of an organization. Very few, I think, can just roll into that job and be credibly successful. It takes a lot of learning. So what does that path look like for you? And what have you learned along the way? So I'll, I'll so John, I'll let you in on a little secret that here, here's the, here's the inside story. So we kept this remarkably at best friends, kept this a secret for, it must've been at least five years maybe somewhere in that range where I was going to be seated as the next CEO. And the date that I was supposed to be seated was in 2016. And we decided to, to move it. We moved it twice for a variety of reasons. But at the time I was over our fundraising, marketing and communications team. And um, they, the, the board had me going through these trainings, right. To, prepare me to be CEO. And it was all very good stuff. But I'm telling you, to your point, this was a brutal, I think between being seated in 2018, in April of 2018, being handed the Southern Red Sands fracking operation that was set to open right next to the sanctuary going from that to covid it it was a not something anyone certainly i don't think anyone anticipated either of those events and definitely not any training that they can give you in a textbook or some course and so a lot of this was just like i i you know john when you talk about leading through a crisis and managing through a crisis honestly I, there is no way I could have done this without the people who work in this organization. That's it. It's as simple as that. It's the people in this organization who rose to the occasion every time, including you. You're the guy that I called when Southern Red Sands happened and said, I need you to come out here and help. And you were on a plane like the next day. And I think that to me is kind of a demonstration of the commitment that we see in the organization today. 
And it's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm super glad you finally recognize my contribution to that, by the way. I single-handedly achieved the success in preserving water for all of the sanctuary and canal. <laughs> now, I mean, of course, I did really very little with that. It was people like Arlen Bradshaw and others, uh, but I was just thrilled to be asked and, and uh, to contribute in any way that I could. Here's the thing that I have to say that's so refreshing. And I, I love, I really want to cultivate this more, but you exemplify this, John, and you're not afraid to speak truth to power. You're not, you're not afraid to ask the hard question. You're not afraid to say, look, this is bullshit. And I don't agree. And there is something so incredibly refreshing about that and important about that. And I think that the more we can sort of engender that in this organization, the stronger we're going to be. And the more anybody can do that in their lives, like just being able to have a relationship with somebody or a few people where they can give you that just unvarnished, you know, the truth. Julie, don't give me any more license to provide that kind of feedback, please. Uh, it isn't easy for people to feel that sort of openness in an organization. I mean, if you want to cultivate that, I was born with a loud mouth, so I don't really know any other way. Uh, and it's probably to a fault uh, a lot of the time. I, I mean, I have very understanding supervisor and bosses and you and others that you know know who I am and you know uh, can accept that. So I think you can strive to build a culture like that, but it doesn't always happen. Like, I mean, you can have an open door policy as a boss, but if no one really feels safe, then no one's going to walk through that door. And those that do, depending on what it is, they might actually pay consequences for it. And it, to me, it's almost like DE&I a little bit where you can, it just words on a page. Creating that type of culture though, much easier said than done. And I think a lot because people it's difficult for people to hear even the most constructive criticism. It's not something that you should be afraid of. And it's hard. It's hard to hear the truth. And I think it takes practice to really be open to that and have, a, have an open heart and recognize, I think, I think at the end of the day, a big shift for me, obviously a big shift for me <clears throat> was going through cancer and recognizing that I might not survive and knowing that if I did make it, I had sort of a new, I had a, a whole new appreciation for life and improvement and all that stuff. But I feel like a lot of people hide from it or maybe don't embrace it. And I think the thing that I always keep in my head is whenever somebody is that way with you, that is true love. That is true love. They are coming from a place of all good things most of the time. And so when you have a friend like Francis Batista, I mean, that that's like the best um, training wheels you can have for just really being able to take some of the, the toughest criticism I've ever heard in my life. And so, and you know what I'm talking about. You've been the recipient of that and God bless him. You know, that's a gift. That's a treasure. Yeah. He's made me cry. He's made me cry multiple times. I think he's made everybody 
in the movement cry at one point or another. Well, let's continue down that, Julie, because people don't like you. Dramatic pause. <laughs> no, just, not all people, but some people don't, right? They think you're a terrible boss. They think you are fill in the blank. Obviously, that's part and parcel of being any leader, particularly CEO of a big organization. But there are people who just genuinely think you are not a good person, a bad actor. How do you deal with that? I, again, I know that being a leader, you have to do at times very unpopular things and you accept that, but it can't be easy to, I don't know, go on glass door and see some pretty nasty stuff. Um, I don't, you know, I, I think, don't you need a subscription to get on Glassdoor? <laughs> that shows you how, how much I, I, I actually want that feedback loop. I don't personally go on there and look at it, but I have people send me, you know, the feedback that's on Glassdoor. It's important. It's um, part of the story. And it, I think the thing that is hard for me when I see that is that somebody feels that way. And I think whenever you see something like that, there's truth in everything. And so whatever, whatever somebody's posted on Glassdoor or whatever they're saying about best friends or me personally or whatever, that is a snapshot in time of their life and their experience here. That's what's hurtful to me. Um, it's not about me feeling whatever they're going to say about me. I try and take that in, absorb it, and and learn from it and move on. But the hard thing is, is that if somebody's had a really terrible experience. And look, I'm not saying that we can make everybody happy all the time. Because there have been moments in my tenure here at Best Friends where I've been terribly unhappy. And, you know, had a, a hell of a time. And so I, I tend to be really quite circumspect about that kind of stuff, but I also take it very seriously. And I think that, again, our platform needs to be kindness, generosity, and providing the best work experience we possibly can for our fellow human beings. I had a very kind of mean-spirited, albeit maybe an accurate joke from back when I started, which was best friends, uh, the Disneyland for animals, but the unhappiest place on earth. And I, if we think about the progress of the organization, it's come so far in how we relate to staff and the people side of this. Interestingly, I think it's really mirrored the focus that we're seeing on the life-saving side that people matter just as much as the animals do. We can't separate them. And internally, a lot of that shift is hard. Cultural change is hard. Leading that, it can make you the target for that criticism, whether it's, you know, whether it's legitimate or not. And I, I really just don't think that's easy. Yeah. I mean, I'd be absolutely lying if I said it was easy. Uh, it's not. And you're kind of you know, you're, you're putting yourself out there and opening yourself up and you're, you're going to hear that stuff. But I think that no matter where you're at in your life, everybody needs that person who is so invested in you as a person and betterment of you and you succeeding, that you can have that dynamic and that relationship. And that I think propels people to grow almost more quickly than anything. John, I really think you you do have that ability and that gift to really 
provide that for people. And I think I've seen you, I think it's your DNA, but I think it's also you're professionally trained as a, you know, a host and a reporter. And so you know how to ask the right questions, but also the tough questions. That's a gift. And over the years, I've seen you get really, really good at knowing how to ask the the tough and right questions that are not intended to do anything but bring out the truth, not be hurtful, not be soft pedal things, but but that candor and that nature that you bring, I think is really important. And I think it it's a part of our culture, you know? Julie, I know time is tight for you, so I really, really appreciate you taking the time for this. It's uh, always great talking to you just to connect and and chat. I think in terms of these podcasts, like it's just so cool to see what's happened with this. It's such a, it's just um, a really personal way for us to talk about our movement. You know, it's cool. That's the CEO of Best Friends Animal Society, Julie Castle, and that was very nice of Julie to say those things about me and the podcast, but the truth is the podcast wouldn't be anything without the following people who serve as the producers of the program, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. Listen, don't forget that our website is awesome. Go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. There you'll find all of the episodes, links to subscribe, and tons of great resources that will help you be the best lifesaver you can be. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.